This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 20th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How will the war on drugs change under a President Trump? Barack Obama did remarkably little to de-escalate the drug war, but Donald Trump and particularly Attorney General Jeff Sessions may step it up. Sean Dunnigan is a former intelligence research specialist at the Drug Enforcement Administration. We spoke about the Obama record on the drug war last month. Uh, years ago when I was a reporter, um, I was pretty well acquainted with the uh, head DEA guy in Louisville, Kentucky. And in some of my interviews with him, I asked him about what sort of his priorities were and what uh, he wanted his office to focus on. And when we got to uh, talking about uh, cannabis, he basically dismissed it as a priority at all. And I, I was taken aback a little bit, but I guess I understand more now that you have limited resources, you want to prioritize those resources. Where do you think uh, marijuana ranks in DEA's list of priorities generally? Well, as a, you know, as a practical matter, it is a lower priority than, say, heroin or cocaine. Um, I think there's a tacit acknowledgement among almost all <laughs> people in DEA, you know, that using marijuana does not pose the same public health risk or risk to the user uh, that using heroin does. And so, you know, there is an acknowledgement, I think, um, that it is a lower priority. However, um, when given the opportunity, uh, you know, those cases are still investigated and prosecuted. And the other problem is that, you know, there are DEA offices all over the country and all over the world. In some of those places, you know, it's hard to make a big cocaine bust um, in Topeka. It's hard to make a big heroin bust in some other smaller towns. So, you know, you sort of have uh, have the infrastructure there to investigate drug crime crimes wherever that resident office may be. Um, and in some places, you know, marijuana is the way to make those big arrests and then affect those prosecutions. So. You know, I mean, I think uh, though the administrator of the DEA probably wouldn't put it this way, marijuana is the lowest enforcement priority among the drugs that are in the, the uh, Controlled Substances Act. However, you know, it is still investigated. People are still going to federal prison for marijuana crimes. And yet, uh, in the flurry of what it's known as midnight regulating, the DEA has tightened rules about some compounds uh, that are contained within the cannabis plant. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, oils containing um, uh, THC and oils that are used really almost exclusively for medicinal purposes. Uh, you know, they want to make sure that the regulations are such that those substances are still clearly prohibited and interpreted as being clearly prohibited under the CSA. Um, and I, you know, uh, it was kind of a surprising move, but the agency has a lot of uh, authority in determining that. And, you know, as any federal agency does um, in deciding how laws are going to be implemented via regulation. So they certainly still care about it. It's certainly still a push. Um, there's still anti-pot messaging that's being produced by the federal government. Uh, it, arguably, it's better than the this is your brain on drugs and just say no. Um, but it's still out there and money's still being spent on it and people are still going to jail. How did Barack Obama fare in your view with respect to the, the war on drugs? I know that he, um, to the extent that it was, I guess, politically feasible in his eyes to step-down enforcement of marijuana laws in states where it was legal for some purpose. He did that, but not until not until late in his administration. 
Yeah, you know, it was, it's certainly a mixed record. Um, I think allowing states to implement their own system of uh, regulated distribution, production and distribution, um, particularly for medical marijuana, but also now in eight states that will have legalized recreational marijuana use. You know, he has given those states some latitude to implement those programs um, and has not been aggressive as he could have been uh, in prosecuting the businesses involved in that growing industry. Um, so I think that was that was reasonable. Um, however, um, he could have at any day during his eight years in the, in the White House um, decided to reschedule or unschedule marijuana. Um, he could have completely put the kibosh on any federal marijuana uh, prosecutions. So, you know, there's an awful lot that he could have done that he didn't. Um, you know, I think he, he was okay um, in terms of allowing states to be those laboratories of innovation with regard to drug policy. Um, unfortunately, the way he went about that um, did not codify any law for the incoming administration. So, you know, while, you know, with the Cole Memorandum uh, written by Deputy Attorney General Cole that basically uh, laid out enforcement priorities um, and directed the Department of Justice not to prioritize marijuana cases in locales where it's been legalized at the state level, you know, that, that can go away with a stroke of a pen um, three days from now. And so, you know, it would have been much more helpful and beneficial you know, if the president had codified some of those changes, uh, either by law or by regulation in changing the, the uh, current scheduling of marijuana under the CSA. Um, and I, I suppose that um, he was so tentative in those reforms for political purposes. However, uh, you know, there's growing support and now majority support for the legalization of adult use or recreational marijuana. And so, you know, I think that timidity uh, to make any sweeping changes I think you know he probably did it for political purposes, but I don't know that that was the right political calculation. Um, I think he probably had a lot more room politically to make those changes than he than he chose to do. In uh, his various public statements about marijuana, he seemed very dismissive of the concerns of people who uh, either just want to use it or people who want to use it for uh, some medical purpose. Yes, he was he was terribly dismissive. Um, you know, I don't think the the administration took seriously the growing body of research that so shows the medical value of cannabis. Um, and I don't think that he took seriously the problems of arrest and over-incarceration that are the result of, uh, you know, the drug war generally, but specifically marijuana policy. And, you know, why he took that approach, I think he probably, uh, coming into office, perceived the political liability of having admitted to be a drug user. Um, and Democrats, of course, are always sensitive to the charge that they're being soft on crime. And so I think the, the path of least resistance was more or less to maintain the status quo that he found when he took the office. The DEA has also uh, made some noises about the drug Kratom, which is uh, a lot of people use. And it seems like there's actually a, a large community online of people who have discovered it. Uh, it's currently essentially legal. But uh, what is the status of that right now, as far as you know? Yeah, so right now it's legal. Um, the DEA published um, draft regulations to schedule Kratom, um, which would have made it illegal at the federal level. Um, but those, as a result of a, a real public pushback, uh, not only by people who use it, but also by healthcare providers, psychologists, psychiatrists, people in the treatment community, um, there was great pushback to the, those proposed regulations. Um, and right now they're tabled. Um, so that, it, that, effect, that ban may still go into effect 
um, at some point in the future under the next administration. But currently, it's legal. Um, and I mentioned the treatment community because one of the one of the uses and values of Kratom is that it is used during uh, the recovery process, during detoxification um, from hard drugs to get users, particularly heroin users, um, off of that drug. And so it's really, to me, unconscionable to ban a substance like Kratom uh, that has been used for a very long time by a great number of people that shows no significant health uh, adverse effects. You worked at DEA and uh, you worked specifically in intelligence in the DEA. What, what did your day-to-day entail? Sure. So there's sort of, a, sort of two sides to the intelligence. Um, one is operational intelligence, which is providing direct case support. Uh, and that it means, you know, I did an awful lot of work with uh, phone numbers and looking at metadata and also intercepted communications from uh, Title III intercepts, um, working with confidential informants, working with cooperating defendants, um, and then a lot of computer work, you know, looking at databases to try to find people and find property and ascertain uh, associations and activities and assets and those sorts of things. And then the other side uh, is strategic intelligence, which I did for a few years. And that's more big picture. So it's looking at organizational profiles, who's who, uh, drug flow analyses to find out, you know, what corridors are being uh, being used, what smuggling methods are being used, that sort of thing. Um, And I did that for a few years in Miami, uh, for three years in Guatemala City, uh, two years in Mexico, four years as a DEA liaison to the National Drug Intelligence Center. President Obama, uh, as he prepared for his final week in office, opened up the uh, degree to which the NSA may share unminimized uh, signal data, which is uh, information about phone calls and emails and that sort of thing, with other agencies. Is DEA on that list? Oh, sure. Yeah, DEA was uh, kind of a participant in that program going back to its inception. Um, I started with, uh, with DEA in March of 1998. And already, we already had a joint uh, collection program with the NSA, where we would receive periodic updates that provided metadata for essentially every international phone call that was made from the United States to another country. And so, uh, you know, I think people tend to think of DEA's agents busting down doors, um, and that is certainly a lot of what they do. But there's also a pretty robust uh, intelligence collection platform uh, that DEA has built up. That includes a lot of the, the bulk collection uh, that was you know, revealed by Snowden, obviously, and that the NSA is sort of the lead agency on. Um, and in fact, when, when there's debate in Congress about expanding those authorities, and this was true during the Patriot Act, one of the arguments that representatives in support of that expansion would make would be, you know, we're, we're just giving to, um, to counterterrorism efforts the authorities that already exist for counter-drug efforts. Um, and that, that, you know, that's really true if you look at, you know, the, um, the collection of, of phone data, metadata, uh, but also the authority of administrative subpoenas, which are widely abused and can be used to strong arm basically any business in the country into providing information to the agency. Uh, the inspector general of the DEA uh, recently issued some some harsh words for the confidential informants uh, program. First, sort of spell out what that is and what was his. What did he say? Sure. So the confidential informant program um, is the program under which uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, in this case specifically with regard to DEA, you know, um, use uh, use individuals to provide information that can be used in furtherance of an investigation. And in exchange for that, are paid, uh, are actually paid uh, paid cash. They're not 
uh, employees of the agency, but they are acting oftentimes as agents of the agency. Um, and DEA has thousands of confidential informants, and they range in level from people who are at, uh, at really the highest levels of transnational criminal organizations to people who at, are at the lowest level, um, operating as lookouts, couriers, uh, mules, uh, and also people whose knowledge of what's going on in drug trafficking come not from any uh, personal direct involvement in the trade, uh, but just as a result of their position or associations. So people like um, uh, Amtrak ticket clerks and conductors and airline gate clerks, uh, people who you know are in a position to see something odd, hear things, potentially know when uh, you know trafficking activity may be occurring. Um, but you know, aren't actually involved in the trade themselves, and it can be incredibly lucrative. I mean, they can make tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars in exchange for this information. To the, and information that may or may not be true. May or may not be true. It's it's it, it is difficult. You know, when you're paying someone to tell you something, their incentive is to tell you as much as possible, <laughs> and so you know, there's really a built-in incentive. And you know, one of the things um, that was found in that audit was that the program is. Uh, is poorly managed, um, that there's insufficient oversight, that some of the provisions within the, uh, the, the regulations, the internal DEA regulations, are being ignored and abused um, to allow the agency to use people who are, you know, um, ha have demonstrably provided false information in the past, um, and also as a workaround around many of the internal checks and oversight mechanisms that exist um, using for instance, uh, subsources. So, you know, um, say, you know, I know something about drug trafficking, but you're the signed up agent. You know, you could be paid, I, I could be paid sort of through you for providing that information. And the reason the agency does that is, you know, maybe I have a criminal record, right? <laughs> maybe I'm somebody um, that they would not want to put on the witness stand or, or you know, for, for whatever reason, I would be, uh, because of past convictions or whatever, uh, prohibited from participating directly in that program. Well, you still can. You just have to do it as a subsource, and that system is very much abused in the agency. Uh, the IG uh, Michael Horowitz uh, at DEA uh, told Representative Tim Wahlberg the DEA's policies are warping priorities by prioritizing asset forfeiture rather than the seizure of drugs, which, of course, we've seen at the state and local level, like on uh, I believe it was I sixty five in Tennessee. They sees the stuff going south, not the stuff going north. And of course, the stuff going south is money. Yes. The stuff going north is drugs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, um, that policing for profit model in which uh, agencies uh, benefit financially, agencies at all levels benefit financially from making asset seizures. Um, but, you know, also there, it's easier. You know, you're, you're less likely to get in a shootout. Um, it's harder to make a good drug case than it is to make an asset forfeiture case. Um, but it's certainly, you know, I, I will say in my experience, it certainly does tend to warp enforcement priorities. Um, I recall I was at a, a, a targeting conference at the National Reconnaissance Office, and a state police captain relayed to me, uh, well, relayed to the group that, you know, one of the challenges he has with his task force, which is comprised of uh, primarily of local um, law enforcement agencies in his area, was that you know rather than making highway interdictions of drugs, they were hitting, uh, and this was I think in uh, uh, Kentucky, they were hitting tractor trailers again uh, coming south into the into the state rather than uh, Kentucky has a, a pretty large illicit marijuana industry, um, tractor trailers coming south into the state rather than leaving the state presumably with marijuana, and the reason was cigarette smuggling. 
because taxes are so onerous on cigarettes in Canada that trafficking organizations will bring, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into Kentucky, which has a pretty low taxes on, on tobacco, or at least did at the time, you know, buy uh, several hundred cartons of cigarettes and drive them up to Canada to sell. And, you know, this has nothing at all to do with why there's a drug task force in his county, but it's very easy to make those seizures. Basically, the, the process is, you know, you pull the, the driver or the courier over, you know, find the money, ask if they know about it. They're going to say no. The cop says, okay, so this isn't your money. They say no. The cop says, we'll sign this piece of paper relinquishing any ownership to it, and they do. And they're generally free to go on their way, and the money goes into the coffers. Something that I found to be really very troubling when uh, Loretta Lynch was being confirmed uh, or being uh, had her hearings in the U.S. Senate before she was confirmed, she was asked about civil asset forfeiture, I believe, by uh, Senator Mike Lee. Um, and she did not distinguish between criminal uh, forfeiture and civil forfeiture. She just called the broad range of forfeiture uh, a wonderful tool, a great tool. And with the incoming Trump administration, what should we expect from Jeff Sessions, who has been, uh, if anything, more adamant about the usefulness and uh, beneficial uh, qualities of civil asset forfeiture? You know, I am not optimistic that Jeff Sessions will affect any positive reform um, with regard to civil asset forfeiture or, frankly, uh, a whole lot else. <laughs> but I would say, um, but it, I hope that there's enough congressional will and enough awareness um, that, you know, this is an abusive practice, that this is ultimately detrimental to enforcement efforts because it does skew um, enforcement priorities and how law enforcement resources are used. Um, and, you know, I, I'm always hopeful that there will be some reform efforts because I do think that it is, on the face of it, an abusive practice uh, that should be severely curtailed. Um, but I, I am not optimistic that that will happen in the next, uh, the next attorney general. Now, there are some members of Congress who've talked about it, but uh, under some questioning here, uh, they don't necessarily view the practice as abusive. They, be, they believe there are abuses, which... I have interpreted to mean that they're concerned about headlines rather than the uh, functional theft of stuff from innocent people by the government. Right. So the argument is that um, the reason uh, drug trafficking, trafficking organizations are in business is to make money. And so, you know, seizing uh, currency from them or assets from them um, disincentivizes drug trafficking activity. And in addition, weakens their ability to affect specific movements. Um, you know, if you're a, a trafficker and every third shipment that you make, the, the proceeds of those are seized, you know, the, the argument is, well, that will, that will change the business model. Um, and so, you know, I, I agree um, that there may be an appropriate place for asset forfeiture in the criminal justice system. However, that appropriate place, I would argue, is post-conviction not in lieu of conviction or in lieu of prosecution. Back to marijuana just for a moment. Uh, you know, the president, of course, had plenary authority to deschedule or reschedule marijuana at will. Um, you argued that rescheduling, that is adding uh, cannabis to a, a lower uh, tier of enforcement under the, the guidelines that are established under the uh, Controlled Substances Act. You say that's not really a fix, though. It's it's a positive move, but it doesn't it doesn't fix things. 
Right. It, it doesn't because, um, you know, under if, if marijuana, for instance, were to be rescheduled to Schedule 2, uh, which is, is the most likely scenario, you know, it, it still remains illegal under federal law. And, you know, it's important to remember that cocaine is a Schedule 2 drug. Um, and so just and morphine. That, and morphine is a Schedule 2 drug. And so, you know, just rescheduling um, doesn't, there, there's no attendant change to enforcement or um, incarceration um, just by rescheduling the drug. The positive aspect is that it would facilitate re medical research into the medicinal value of cannabis, um, which currently is very much impeded by the Schedule One classification because, you know, by definition, a Schedule One drug is one that has a high potential for abuse and no accepted medical value. And so it's very hard to obtain, for instance, uh, federal research money um, to conduct um, clinical trials or, or experiments regarding the medicinal value of cannabis. It's hard to get private research money, and it's hard to get the cannabis to, to conduct those. So you know, rescheduling to Schedule Two or Schedule Three would be positive re with regard to opening up the research. Um, but it wouldn't do anything um, to kind of scale back the federal war on marijuana. Sean Dunnigan works with the Law Enforcement Action Partnership and is a former intelligence research specialist at the DEA. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.